New Horizon has been serving the church in Northern Ireland since 1989, and we're delighted to bring you this talk today. We trust you will be blessed through this ministry. We are journeying together along the great storyline of the Bible, the drama of the whole of Scripture. And today we come to the center of this whole narrative, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension. Act four of our diagram of the drama of scripture. Now, you remember that God promised Abraham right back in Genesis 12 that through him all nations on earth would be blessed. That's God's agenda. That's God's great mission, not just for Israel, but for every tribe and nation and language on earth. But the Apostle Paul sees an even wider scope in the mission of God. It is ultimately for his whole creation. This is how he sums it up in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Paul says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will, that is, his plan and purpose, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach the fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So you see, according to Paul, God's ultimate purpose is to bring reconciliation and healing and integration and unity, shalom, in other words, in all its fullness, to his whole creation. And God is going to do that in and through and under Christ. That's the vast cosmic scope of the will and plan and mission of God. Now, in the rest of this letter to the churches in Ephesus, Paul spells out that cosmic unity in various other dimensions. The whole letter really is about oneness and unity. First of all, in chapters two and three, he talks about the ethnic unity of Jews and Gentiles who have been made one in Christ, as we'll be thinking of in a moment. And then he goes on in chapter four to talk about ecclesial unity, how we in the church are to maintain the oneness of the spirit in the bond of peace, and then to live that out in our relationships with other believers. And then he urges us in chapters four and five to ethical integrity, that our behavior should be consistent with who we are in Christ. And even when he turns to households, to husbands and wives, he sees marriage as a microcosm of that oneness that exists between Christ and his bride, the church, which in turn uh, is the church who will inhabit the oneness of the reconciled cosmos in the new creation. So what a picture this is, what a story, what multidimensional cosmic shalom that has been accomplished by Christ. But today, let's concentrate on the passage where Paul talks specifically about peace, the peace that God has accomplished through Christ between Jews and Gentiles. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, where he uses the word peace three times, as we will see. Now, in the Apostle Paul's world, the ancient Greek and Roman world, the greatest division and hostility was between Jews, like himself, and Gentiles, that is, people of all the other nations, whatever they were. You see, Jews believed, quite rightly, that God had chosen them in Abraham to be his covenant people, and so they were to keep themselves distinct from other nations in their holiness, to worship one God only, not all the other gods, to refuse the idols and gods of the other nations, including those of the Roman Empire, which was costly. That's what Jews believed. Gentiles, on the other hand, regarded these Jews as religious oddities, 
mostly they despised them. Although some Gentiles did admire the Jews for their uh, moral ways, and some Gentiles became what the New Testament calls God-fearers, who attached themselves to synagogues. But even so, the division between Jew and Gentile ran very, very deep. But then we remember from our Old Testament scriptures that God's intention had always been that through Israel, God's blessing would come to the Gentiles, that Gentiles would come to belong within God's people. And that, says Paul, that is what has now become possible through God's Messiah, Jesus. Indeed, he says, that is the gospel. That's the good news, that the God of Israel has kept his promise to Abraham and is now reaching out to people of all nations to bring them to himself. God is making peace between Jews and Gentiles and between both of them with God. Shalom, accomplished in Christ. That's really what Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22 is all about. Now, if you look at this text in the NIV, you will see that it breaks it up into three paragraphs, quite helpfully, I think. Verses 11 to 13, Paul describes the incredible difference that God has made for the Gentiles between formerly at one time in the past and now in verse 13. And then in the second paragraph, verses 14 to 18, Paul explains how that's been achieved through the cross of Christ. And then in verses 19 to 22, Paul portrays the results of all of this, who and what we are now through faith in Christ. Now, you could call this, if you like, transformation, explanation, and consolidation. <laughs> you could, if you like, long words like that. Or you could just say that in verses 11 to 13, we have then and now. In verses 14 to 18, we have how and why. And in verses 19 to 22, we have so what? So first of all, then, then and now, verses 11 to 13. Paul addresses his Gentile readers, those who were disparagingly called the uncircumcised by the Jews, highlighting this great divide, this chasm. And he tells them to remember what they had formerly been, that is, before they came to faith in Christ. Verse 12, Paul says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. One verse. And yet Paul lists five serious negative factors in the condition of these people before they became Christians in what we might call their BC period when they were not part of Israel. And it's a picture, isn't it, of separation, of alienation, of being outside, far away. He says, first, they were separate from Christ, that is, from the Messiah, who, in a sense, belonged to Israel even before Jesus came. Secondly, they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, that is, they were outside the sphere of God's election and blessing in Old Testament Israel. Thirdly, they are foreigners to the covenants. That is, they knew nothing at all about the promises that God had made to Israel of salvation, which were ultimately for the benefit of the nations, though they were ignorant of them. And so fourthly, Paul says, they were without hope. They had no share in this great hope of Israel, of God's future deliverance, and of that future age of peace and blessing that we see in the Psalms and the prophets. And fifthly, therefore, they were without God. They had no relationship, no knowledge even, of the one true living God who had revealed himself to Israel. 
So, I mean, what a catalog of deprivation. This verse focuses not so much on the Gentiles' sin as on their separation. The Gentiles were separated, alienated from Israel's Messiah, Israel's community, Israel's promise, Israel's hope, and Israel's God. But of course, we have to say that this describes not just the condition of those Gentile nations who lived before Christ, but for all who live without Christ. This is the spiritual reality. This is, we might say, the, the inside story, the truth of what human life is beneath whatever veneer of civilization or religion or achievement there might be on the surface. You see, those citizens of Ephesus that Paul is writing to, they were predominantly wealthy, sophisticated, cultured, urban people, proud of their city. But the reality was what Paul says in verse 12, as is still true today, whatever the appearances. Without Christ, people are far away from God, far from home. But now, says Paul in verse 13, this staggering, incredible transformation, but now in the Messiah Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In and through him, in and through the cross of Christ, you who are far away have been brought near to God. So the separated have been connected. The alienated have been reconciled. The distant have been brought home. The outsiders have been brought in. It's a dynamic picture of the way the gospel meets what is a basic human need, which is to belong, to be close, not to be cut off and left out. It's a horrible thing, isn't it, to be left out? Maybe you remember as a child what it felt like when you didn't get picked for the team or you weren't invited to the party. Or even as an adult, when you're ostracized or you always feel you're on the outside of the in crowd. And in spiritual terms, of course, it's far more terrible to be far away from God, to be separated from the one who made us and loved us. But the gospel brings us near, brings us home. And that's shalom, isn't it? Shalom is homecoming, coming home to God. So that's the first thing. Then and now the transformation that God has accomplished. But then Paul moves on in his second paragraph to how and why in verses 8, 14 to 18. How has this happened? How has this amazing transformation taken place? And verse 13 summarizes it, that it's in Christ Jesus. It's by the blood of Christ. That is the death of Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, his death on the cross. And it all revolves around the key word of this section, which is the word peace. Paul emphasizes that word three times in this paragraph. Did you notice? Verse 14, Christ is our peace. Verse 15, Christ made peace. And verse 17, Christ preached peace. So let's look at each of those in turn. First of all, Christ is our peace in verse 14. That's quite a remarkable identification, don't you think? It's not just that Jesus gives peace. Jesus is peace. Peace is a person, the person of Jesus himself. Peace, as we might say, is Jesus-shaped. Jesus is the truth, the way, the life, and wisdom, and salvation, and peace. 
So peace then is not just a process that we have to go through. It's not a state that we can somehow achieve by negotiation. It's not just a distant ideal that we have to aim at somehow. No, peace is a personal relationship with the Prince of Peace, knowing Christ, being united with Christ, being in Christ. That's peace. But then secondly, Paul says that Christ has made peace in verses 14 to 16. And how has he done that? Well, remember immediately that Paul is talking here about the basic hostility between Jews and Gentiles and their alienation from God. Now, in any conflict resolution and reconciliation process, there are usual, usually several steps that have to be taken. And here in these verses, Paul identifies three steps through which the cross of Christ has achieved peace, both horizontally and vertically. Step one is that through the cross, God has abolished the barrier that divides. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Now, Paul is referring here, of course, to the Old Testament law as the defining identity of the Jewish people. But it's quite important to recognize that Paul is not here in this particular place thinking of the Torah as the good and gracious gift of God, which he gave to them to enable Israel to live as he wanted, as we were thinking yesterday. The law in that sense, and as Paul says, in Romans 7, the law was the reflection of God's own will and character. It is something to be welcomed, something to be delighted in, as the psalmist knew and celebrated. I mean, look at Psalm 19, Psalm 119. The law was given to shape Israel to be a light to the nations, full of teaching and principles that we can still learn from, as we were seeing yesterday from Leviticus 19. So in that sense, we remember what Jesus also said, that I have not come to abolish the law. And in that sense, Paul himself could say that the law is holy, that the command is holy and righteous and good, he says in Romans 7, verse 12. So now what Paul is talking about here is those regulations in the Old Testament law that were the prime symbol or badge of Jewish identity, the thing that in a sense separated them off as Jews from Gentiles, observing the law, especially the clean, unclean food regulations and keeping the Sabbath and circumcision, those were the defining marks of Jewish identity as over against the Gentiles. But the problem is that this had become like, like a wall of separation between them, as Paul calls it, perhaps thinking of the wall in the temple in Jerusalem that kept the Gentiles outside in the outer court. And for some Jews, that had become a wall of prejudice and pride, as it certainly was for Paul himself before he met the risen Christ. And what Paul says here is that Christ has abolished that dividing, separating, hostile power of the law through his death on the cross. And then step two is by uniting the two into one new humanity. In the second half of verse 15, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So, you see, it's not that the Gentiles have, first of all, to become Jews, or even that the Jews somehow have to become Gentiles. 
but rather the Jews and Gentiles together become one new single reality in Christ. So in Christ, you see, one plus one equals one, not two. And this is the great new reality that has been achieved by the cross. Jesus unites two fundamentally divided categories of people into a new creation, a new humanity. Paul's words are actually very powerful. Literally what he says is one new man, one new human being. In Christ, says Paul, there's a new way of being human that is no longer defined by ethnic identity, whether you're Jewish or any other nationality, but your humanity is now being defined by being reconciled in Christ, a new reconciled one humanity. So you see the peace which Jesus made is here, first of all, being described as horizontal peace between people, between us, between our human communities, between enemies. And that leads then to step three, which is reconciling both to God, verse 16, and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So Jews and Gentile believers now form one body, the church, the body of Christ. And in that new reconciled unity, we are reconciled to God himself through the cross. God, says Paul, has put to death their hostility. God slays the enmity. Notice, God does not slay the enemies. See, that was how the Roman Empire made peace. The Roman Empire just imposed peace by the sword. Even one of their own writers made that critical point in a very sarcastic way. Quote, Rome makes a desert and calls it peace. That famous Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was an imposed peace. It was sustained simply by slaying anybody who got in the way. Rome made peace by the blood of the cross. They just crucified rebels and opponents who got in their way. So when Paul makes that point, making peace through the blood of the cross, it's a stark contrast, almost certainly deliberate, to Rome's way of making peace. Paul says, no, this is God's way. God made peace through the blood of the cross borne by God himself in the person of his son. So at the cross, God did not slay the enemies, but slays the enmity. When all of us are at the foot of the cross, we are no longer enemies of one another. There are no enemies at the cross, only forgiven, reconciled sinners, reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. The cross ends our hostility in both directions. So those then are the steps by which God, through the cross of Christ, has made peace. Shalom is the achievement of the cross. So then Christ is our peace. Christ made peace. And then Paul goes on thirdly to say that Christ came and preached peace. Verses 17 and 18. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, Christ, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So Christ preached peace. And we say, well, when? I mean, Jesus 
Jesus never went to Ephesus. But what Paul means is that when Paul arrived there preaching Jesus, preaching the cross, preaching the gospel, it was Jesus himself through his Holy Spirit who was proclaiming the peace that he had achieved on the cross. And as always, Paul sees that what has happened in the gospel through the cross of Christ is fully in line with God's plan and purpose as spoken of in the scriptures, as we now call it the Old Testament. Because in that verse 17, Paul combines two great gospel scriptures from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, proclaiming, preaching peace, announcing news of happiness. And also Isaiah 57, verse 19, peace, says God, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. You see, after the exile in Babylon, some Jews had gone back to Jerusalem, but others were still scattered far away by the violence of both the Assyrians and the Babylonians many years before. So originally in that text in, in Isaiah, far and near meant Jews who were scattered in the diaspora, they were far away, and Jews who were now back in Jerusalem, they were near, and God in Isaiah is proclaiming peace to all of them. But Paul transforms that imagery here to mean the Gentiles, the foreign nations who were indeed far away, as he just said in verse 12, and the Jews who were near because they knew God. But, says Paul, both now, far and near, both alike and both together, have got access to God the Father through the one spirit in verse 18. I wonder, can you see the beautiful progression that we have here between verse 13 at the end of the first paragraph and verse 18 at the end of the second paragraph? Because you see, it just gets better and better. At the end of that first paragraph in verse 13, we are brought near to God. And we might think, wow, that's good enough for me. After being so far away, just to be brought home, just to be near this God who loved me enough to send his son to die for me, nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee. What a gift, what a blessing to be near to God. But then by the end of the second paragraph and at verse 18, we get not just to be near God, but to come right into God's presence, into the holy of holies, as it were, right into the presence of God our Father to be able to know him as father, to pray to him as father, to love him and to be loved as the child of my father in heaven. And surely that's an even greater gift and blessing, which Jesus tells us again and again to enjoy and to trust in. So let's summarize where we've got so far in these two main points. First is that through the cross of Christ, that which separates us from one another in hatred and hostility, that has been dealt with and abolished at the cross. And secondly, that through the cross of Christ, that which separates us from God has been dealt with and removed. So through the cross of Christ, then, we have peace with one another and peace with God, because Jesus is our peace. But so what? That brings us to our third point. Paul says, consequently, in verse 19, he says, therefore, this is the case. 
And you notice that Paul goes back now to talking about you. He, he Once again, in a sense, he's addressing these Gentile Christians of Ephesus in order to highlight this phenomenal change that has happened because of all that God had accomplished for them at the cross. What does it mean? What's the outcome? What real difference does it make to our status, to our identity in the world? Or as we might put it in the terms of what we're thinking about this week, what does this peace, this shalom, really mean? Well, it means everything, says Paul. Consequently, he says, because of Christ, because of the cross, nothing is the same as it used to be. No longer, he says in verse, verse 19, something has happened that has changed what you used to be into something completely different. Now, here in these verses, Paul uses three wonderful pictures. All of them are drawn from the Old Testament scriptures, and all of them describe the transformation that has happened. Here is what we have become. First of all, we have become fellow citizens of God's own country. First half of verse 19. Consequently, says Paul, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now, those terms foreigners and aliens, they were the terms that were used in Old Testament Israel to describe people who were not Israelites, but had come to live in their land as immigrants or as workers or people like Ruth, you know, seeking asylum, seeking protection, coming because of poverty and need. And as we saw uh, in Leviticus 19 and elsewhere, there are many laws relating to them. They were to be treated kindly and with justice, but they got no stake in the land. They were not really part of the covenant citizenship of Israel themselves. But now, says Paul, you Gentiles, you have been adopted into citizenship in Israel. Your identity now is the same as Israel's was in the Old Testament. You've become part of the covenant people of God through the Messiah Jesus. Later on, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul spells this out even more fully and more emphatically. He says that through the gospel, the Gentiles, these foreign nations, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. We have become part of that people of God of Israel. He said the same, of course, to the Gentile believers in Galatia, when you read his letter to the Galatians, insisting that through their faith, their faith in Messiah Jesus, they, these Gentile Galatians, are now children of Abraham. So that there's no longer, he says, Jew and Gentile, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. Citizenship, citizenship in God's people, that really matters just like citizenship matters in our world today. I mean, when you travel abroad out of your own country, you know you're a foreigner. I mean, you stand in that long immigration queue under some sign that says foreign passports. Whereas when you come back to your own country, you can breeze rapidly through your own gates if you're lucky. Uh, of course, these days it may be a bit different, but you will go to the line that says UK citizens. And you're a citizen and you can say, this is my country. I belong here. That's my status. That's my birthright. That's my privilege. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. Welcome to my country, says God. You are citizens of my people now. 
But then Paul adds, secondly, you have become members of God's own family. Second half of verse 19, members of his household. Now that word house or household was another Old Testament term that was frequently used for the people of Israel. You see, it, it pictured them as just one great family, one great kinship group, as indeed, in a sense, they were largely as the tribes of Israel descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so often they're called the house of Israel or the house of Jacob, or sometimes the house of Yahweh. These were family terms, kinship terms for God's people in the Old Testament era. And so Paul says, in Christ, we not only have a new citizenship, but also a new kinship. We've been adopted into the family of God, sisters and brothers, through faith in Messiah Jesus, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. And of course, that brings a great responsibility that we should be treating all other Christians as family members. And we're not so good at that sometimes, are we? Years ago, when my wife and I lived in India, and our children went to Indian schools for several years, one occasion we watched our two sons in the school assembly, which was outside on the parade ground in the sunshine. And they were the only two white children in this great sea of Indian boys of all ages and sizes. And in that assembly, they were enthusiastically reciting the kind of pledge that Indian children say in school. And they were saying with great enthusiasm, India is my country, all Indians are my brothers and sisters. <laughs> well, through the cross of Christ, and because of the shalom that God accomplished there, we are able to stand and to say, Christ is my country, and all Christians are my brothers and sisters. You see, when you belong to Christ, you belong to the largest family on earth, and the oldest family in history. That's what Paul says. Consequently, he says, because of the cross, because of this peace that God has made, we have become citizens of God's own country and members of God's own family. And thirdly, Paul says, we have become the place of God's own home in verses 20 to 22. See, here Paul adds a third picture from the Old Testament era. That is, of course, the temple. And now, Paul says, the temple of God is no longer that building in Jerusalem, but you, you the people whom God is building together as his dwelling place. You, he says, are being built into this temple. That's what he says. You read it there in verse 20, 21. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, you Gentiles, you foreigners, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Isn't it amazing? In Christ, we have become the place where God himself lives. And what an incredible picture that is. It's not just that God dwells in each one of us, as it were, through his spirit in my heart, um, as elsewhere that Paul says that even our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, but that together Jews and Gentiles, people from anywhere on earth, that we collectively have become God's residence, God's home, 
God's dwelling place. Or as Ajit Fernando, the great Sri Lankan theologian says, God's address on earth is you. Now can you see the wonderful climax that Paul builds into our three paragraphs. See, in verse 13, we get to come near to God. How wonderful is that? And in verse 18, we get to come into God's presence. How even more wonderful is that? But in verse 22, we get to have God come and live within us. What a transformation. What a surprise. I mean, it's surprising enough that we should be allowed to have access into God's home. It's even more wonderful that God should make his home in us. I mean, this is nothing short of a miracle. This is the miracle of God's grace through the cross. That from being the people, being the place where God was absent and far away, we have become the place where God has actually come to take up residence. This is the, the beautiful heart and soul of the gospel. This is what it does for us because of the cross of Christ. Outsiders are brought near. Enemies are reconciled to one another and to God. Foreigners become citizens. Strangers become family. Those who knew not God at all become the place where God himself is at home. Praise God. Hallelujah for his grace and for the shalom that that has accomplished. Let me finish with just three short implications of all of this. First of all, Paul's teaching here completely rules out the idea that is still there in some circles, that there are somehow still two covenants running in God's economy, somehow a separate covenant for the Jews and Jesus for the Christians. No, says Paul. There is only one way for both to come near, to be saved, to have access to the Father, and that is through the Messiah, Jesus. And in him, the two become one. Abraham has only one family. God has only one family. The family that is united in the shalom that is accomplished through the cross of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And the second implication is this that there is no reconciliation to God without reconciliation with one another. The gospel of the cross of Christ necessarily includes both or else you get neither. So you see any group that claims to be somehow right with God themselves, but refuses to be reconciled to other believers in Christ are denying the gospel of the cross. And what does that say? to our chronic dividedness and our quarreling in the church and beyond. And my third point is simply this, that ultimately the best hope, indeed the only hope for peace on earth, for goodwill among men, lies, as the angel said, in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who made peace, the one who preaches peace, the one who is our peace. So let us then be, indeed, as we are thinking all this week, let us be people of peace, proclaiming the gospel of peace and heeding those words of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called children of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this talk. If you would like to know more about New Horizon, please visit our website at newhorizon.org.uk.